This is Passing for Normal, conversations with artists, activists, and awakeners about how they are seeding change in the world. I'm your host, Sharon Weil, author of Donnie and Ursula Save the World and the new book, Changeability, a work of nonfiction exploring how to navigate change with more effectiveness and ease. How do you find courage? How do you become more effective in navigating change? Find out when you join us for fun and insightful discussion with some very inspirational people about how to turn purpose and passion into action, while at the same time, passing for normal. Hello and welcome to Passing for Normal Season 3. My guest Susan Harper and I were having such an amazing conversation about meeting the unknown with fresh eyes of wonder about being able to see or perceive something new in a new way and about also about the internal and external safety that we require in order to reach or stretch into the new that I wanted to continue it. So here we are. Hey, Susan. Hello. Hi. So I can't <laughs> wait to jump back into our conversation because I know there's so much more um, that I want to talk to you about and that you have to say. Um, before we jump in, I just want to remind our listeners that you, Susan Harper, are the founder of Continuum Montage and that you teach perception and movement inquiry in the most exquisite ways. And that one of the beautiful things that Susan does is that you create contexts for those who dare to listen at the edge and in the depths for people who are aware of wanting the adventure of courting the unknown. So here we are again. So we were talking about where did we leave off? Um, I'm actually just thinking about that last sentence mm -hmm. about at the edge and in the depths. And yeah, there's something about the courtship of the unknown which means being able to see both what might ever seem obvious to us, like state the obvious, this is what I'm actually seeing, and then being able to like, take the wide, wide, wide view, like the high view that can see from eagle point of view, like to look down on any given moment, the wide view of um, like the high art of witnessing, but also the view of, like, underground listening. What else is wanting to be known here that's not so visible, not yet so knowable? Like, it's kind of listening to the silence in any given moment of encounter. And then to be able to be, like, our dance of being at the edge of something, what we can see if we're at the edge of a party, to say, or right in the middle, the center of it or I'm in the center of my own, like, operating system, psyche, and then what happens if I come way out to the edges of my skin, my, my toes, my fingers, I come to the edges of myself as I'm actually meeting the environment context I'm in, at the edge of the conversation, listening for a while, not so fully in. It's like that ability to shift viewpoint or perspective uh, there's just something in that art that I that I really like and when I say that statement about 
those who are who who dare to take up the adventure of meeting the unknown it it speaks in a way to safety because we to to dare into something is to come past where we're safe we have to not have enough safety to take a dare <laughs> that's right we really do we Some do kind of internal safety or trusting of of our environment to say okay yes. i'm going i'm standing on this cliff and i'm going to jump yes. in the water yes exactly and and like each time jumping in the water is a great version cuz like the first time a child jumps into the water, well, at first it might be totally pleasurable. They don't even know that that's such a risk. But there's some point comes, you know, if you're standing at the edge of a high dive, that it's a risk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it's thrilling because it could go not so well or it could be great. And when we say that the dare to take a risk in the unknown, it means I might uncover in my own psyche process or my own creative processes, I might uncover something I don't like, but on the other hand, equally possible, that I may be really opening up a new thread of exploration, a new terrain, a new territory. And it could be risky that if I open that, it rearranges some other aspect of my life. Like I met Emily Conrad, founder of Continuum, and moved two weeks later to from Tucson, Arizona to, to Los Angeles. And I was willing to take a risk of, like, I had a little simple, steady job. I kind of had a place to stay. But there was something of, like, no, I want to go discover more about my creative energies. I'm taking this risk to be amongst people who are courting the unknown, to use that phrase. Yes. And, um, and it rearranged my entire life. Yes. My entire life is different out of those meetings. So a good, juicy meeting can rearrange a life. Yes, <laughs> it can. <laughs> it can. And then there's also the, the incremental risks, you know, so like yeah. taking the idea of, you know, standing at the edge and jumping into the water. Well, you yeah. know, jumping in from the edge of the pool is one thing. Going up to the diving board is another. Going up to the high dive is another. Going up to the way yeah. high dive is another. Yeah. You know, so it's not just the act itself, but sometimes it's the degree of risk that we perceive right. is right. the danger or the challenge, mm-hmm. right? Yes, indeed. Indeed. And therefore, we often need to be with those who can also reassure us that they've taken a similar risk. Mm-hmm. And not only, not only have they come out okay, but they've actually come out stronger, more alive, and more awake. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yes, mm-hmm. and that's why we need teachers. <laughs> that's what our yes. teachers do for us, is show us. Yeah. And not only show us, I did this and I survived, but... And this is how I did it. Right. And, and thrive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because really, some of us are places where we're looking at survival issues, but many of us are looking at psychological, emotional. We're kind of stuck in an in a, in a old thought form and where a strategy or a movement we were taking at that time, it felt like, and maybe was accurately so, our very survival depended upon that. 
but we might be operating with that belief system in a moment where those circumstances no longer exist. And I need to have a fresh moment of really seeing where I am and being able to take a new movement that would let me thrive, come beyond survival yes, into thrival. Into thrival. Yeah. Well, um, one of the things that I very much want to talk to you about is your use of ritual. Um, in your work and how, you know, in your travels throughout the world, you have um, participated in many different cultural rituals and and observed many different cultural rituals and that ritual or ceremony serves a purpose in facilitating change. And I want to, um, I want to ask you about that. Yes, yes, uh, that is so true if it's a living ritual. And a living ritual is something that's designed um, to shift our consciousness from our habitual awareness to a much larger, vaster space where we can sense the unknown. And it, a good ritual never goes according to plan, <laughs> ever. If it's a real ritual... It doesn't go. Now, this is not the common sense definition. Like, I looked up on Wikipedia, and the first sentence says, a ritual is a sequence of activities involving gestures, words, and objects performed in a sequestered place and performed according to a set sequence. And the words that go along with that are tradition, formalism, uh, um, invariance, but my experience of ritual, and so I'm, going to, I'm, I'm naming it because I want to say that I'm using the word ritual not to describe something that's traditional and formalized and sequenced. It's to say that in ritual we create a, uh, we create a context and a way of exploring to make deeper, more... more touchable, exchangeable relationships with all of the elements, just for an example, with our own creative process that lets us feel a larger creative flux, a larger creative movement. Um, in, in ritual, in good ritual, like you're opening to a larger perspective and to the unseen creative forces and forces of dissolution, like like many rituals are ways of helping someone dissolve their too familiar steady routine that just keeps having them like repeat the same actions over and over and over again. And in, in a good ritual, there's a moment where we're letting go of kind of the usual operating system and to create a small dissolution or a large one, depending on the intensity of ritual space, initiatory ritual space, to have, in a way, a mini-death of a way of doing things, to let something new come in that rearranges the order, the how I'm living, and the interconnectedness with which I'm living. And, and I'll give you just a few examples. Like, sometimes in my one-on-one -on -one work with somebody, we're working more uh, 
tracking emotions, sensations, needs, affects. And there comes just a moment where it's so clear that there's like maybe just a, an aspect of self that needs blessing. And I might get out a bowl of water. And we might find a way to create a small little theater, symbolic theater of small little actions that, that bathe a certain part or bless a certain part in us that has been wounded and that just needs blessing for the sheer fact of that. Or maybe it helps open up um, some of the places where the tears of grief are forming and spilling into the earth and being caught in a, in a bowl of water or a moment where tears are being blessed with sweet water as a way of, of, um, as a way of really deeply meeting that element in its own element mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah so all rituals um address transformation right well you know it depends in some ways they're meant to but in some ways a ritual like for some reason that sometimes people don't like the word ritual because they performed a very dead ritual, let's say, in the way they received communion every Sunday. It was just the same little pellet of mm-hmm. an old stale cracker and a little drink of grape juice, depending on where you were, which kind <laughs> of ritual you were going through. And it didn't have, like, there was no real juice to it anymore. There was a set of circumstances and activities. It was in a prescribed place, but nothing about it was very alive or transformative, really. So do we want to use the word living ritual then, you know, for the purpose of our conversation, and that living ritual is meant to um, take you from one place to another, from one state to another. It's it's transforming the moment and oftentimes making the unseen seen, you know, taking something that might feel more abstract and grounding it in the earth grounding it in objects, grounding it in an action that says this moment, like even, you know, even a marriage, right? Yes. There are words and things are said, but it's like something about a living ritual of marriage creates the union in that moment. Yes. Yes, exactly like that. Mm-hmm. And it's partly like the the true old understanding of theater mm-hmm. that that in the theater of the moment we're we're again re-symbolizing we're letting something be seen in a whole new way and we're making a new meaning we're weaving meanings and purposes that have from by an experiential point of view a silent ramification where like the new insight is just like wah, 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 moving through every cell of our being, and we're no longer the same. Like because we live in a Western modern culture, we are like the, the commodity thinking is so, so, so strong. Like the, the illusion of the elements as our commodities that we are there, like the earth is there as our 
junkyard, as our hardware store, as our <laughs> recess center, as our entertainment. Like, you know, oh, this will make a great backdrop for my picture. We're like in in such a um, narrow version in relating to nature, to earth, to water. We are buying and selling our land, so we think of it very much now in these commodity ways. And so to help remove the veil, the spell of commodity thinking, and actually come back and go, my gosh, I take this drink of water, and with fresh tongue and fresh lips and a fresh swallowing moment, like to taste the sweetness of water, like the water body of me is receiving more of itself. And I'm in a larger circulation with all the waters on the planet, for example. And that ties me just for a moment back to the very first big giant womb of all life, the ocean, and my earliest uh, forming as sperm and egg coming into the womb waters inside my mother. And for some moment I have a connection to the larger astonishing miracle of what water actually is water in its capacity to state change, to freeze, to evaporate, become gaseous, to melt, to fall, to flow, to still. And all of those are ways that I might state change. And then in so many cultures worldwide, water is used for blessing and baptism, like we know that there's something about the little dissolutions that are needed for reformation, because all life forms in water. It's the formative tendency of water itself to dissolve and to form. And so I know, wow, I'm in need of a change. I need to come to water, because water is that element that is ripe with that state-changing capacity. I need to know about acceptance. Come to water. Look how the water accepts your body when you slip your body into a pond. It's a, I'm a body of water entering a larger body of water. And to have a moment where I'm in communion of being water being inside the body of water and to be renewed in the large, vast circulation of the waters of the planet is something that can help me uh, restore and renew that capacity in myself. Yes, and as you're speaking, you know, when you're speaking about the living ritual of coming to water, for instance, you know, you're also Mm -hmm. speaking of this heightened awareness that you spoke of before. Um, Yes. You know, that by, by... opening into saying that saying this moment is sacred this moment is special this moment i'm going to be paying attention and when you pay attention suddenly suddenly all of the qualities of water the properties of water the history of water um opens up before you exactly and in that way we could say that an entire life could become living ritual because it's all based on exactly that, paying attention, actually mm-hmm. really opening and being awareness, being aware of the totality of itself. Is to pay attention is to see freshly and to perceive the interconnected uh, 
wholeness that's constantly operating. Right, and, and so a lot of times um, uh, I've seen you work with creating altars that are part of rituals, and you bring in objects from nature, water, beautiful stones, flowers, uh, beautiful cloths, um, that these altars take on different meanings or they're created for different purposes, but they also contain in and of themselves a, a carefully uh, curated beauty. Yes, and I, in some ways we never need to create an altar. In one way we could say that. In another way, we do it in order to highlight, to bring into conscious consideration the relationship and interrelationship, and further than that, the interbeingness, the inseparability, really, of that. I'm inseparable from all the elements that may appear to be outside me, earth and water and fire, air, space. All are interbeing. They're all uh, creating their, uh, an interweaving that make up my physicality and my psyche processes. And so we make an altar to help highlight a place of consideration and to help us re-symbolize. What does this mean? Not just to me, but what does water mean to itself? And what does water mean to fire? And what does water mean to the deer that comes to drink it? And we're opening up the, um, the imagination uh, uh, of relating to these. So each element, there's like qualities, like the fire that helps us um, burn up those really static, sticky, like been this way for too long, that I might do a fire ritual and ask the fire, help me burn up this pattern that I keep going back to it over and over and over. Because when a fire burns, it takes something that's so solid, so heavy as a log, and in no time at all returns it to energy, returns it back to source, returns it, and just a little bit of ash is left. There's a, a, an amazing dissolution that occurs. So I might come to fire to ask fire to help me disintegrate something that's too solid in me. Or I might come to fire to help me know the creative aspect, like the way the sun is giving our energy to our planet. And so I might come to the fire ritual to address a creative, generative, uh, energy-giving, generous aspect of the fire that gives energy to life. Mm -hmm. I might come to the fire to ask for the warmth in my heart to be renewed if I've gone through a cold, cold time of denial or getting too brittle or too frozen. I might ask the fire to help warm me and soften me again. Or I might come to the fire like like around cremation, like after cremating my mother, my father, after Emily's cremation, then I come to make a creation cremation ritual myself with others to dance and sing, um, to celebrate and remember and to um, let that uh, aspect of this generative capacity of fire 
and its capacity to disintegrate the old form and release it in its vibrant, light-filled form and to be able to, um, to renew and remember a connection. And I might come to fire around the way I am a consumer, too much consuming, because fire consumes and combusts. Mm-hmm. So if I'm a lot too angry and out of balance, I may need to let the fire take that over for me and then mix it with a water ritual so that I can come back to soothe and settle and soften and come back into a peaceful, soft place. Um, so the fire could be addressed in a whole variety of different ways. Um, and part of it is the art of creating spontaneously what ritual is needed and what element would help me create the theater that lets me enact and move and play with different parts of my psyche that need expression and, um, and help. Yeah. Yeah. We need help from all the elements. We need help. <laughs> I think I've said this before. We need help. And yes, we need help from the elements and what, and again, looking at them, not just in the ways that we're used to looking at them, you know, the destructive mm-hmm. nature of fire, for instance, but the enlivening mm-hmm. nature of fire and the... That's right. Um, That's right. There might be an eros ritual, like I want to renew my sexuality or I'm out of control with my sexuality and I... I need to come to the fire and learn about the warm ember part. Or I might need, like, oh, how do I ignite? I don't remember how to ignite. Fires are good for teachers about that. Mm-hmm. Yes. And then similarly, uh, working with the earth element is going to, um, you know, when you need to come to the earth element or when you need to come to the element of air. Yes. These are all... Um, ways in right, which like the, we find balance, right? Indeed. Like the element of the earth, one of the most astonishing qualities of the earth is its equanimity. It doesn't matter if you're good or bad or you're Genghis Khan or the Buddha. Like everybody has a place on this earth. Mm. And it holds such an equanimity for all life forms. And all life forms are really born out of the mix of earth and fire and water and air, space. But the earth is like the home place. It's like that place where gravity exists and where we have a, gravity is like a spiritual force of belonging that says, I have a place for you called here. And here is always now. And so the earth is about our original belonging. And we're born in the womb of the mother, but we're born in the womb of the planetary body, and we're born in the womb of the cosmic body. And the earth is our earth home, and we make little initiatory ritual journeys through a life to go from the original mother connection then to the larger mother earth planetary connection to a cosmic earth, uh, a cosmic star field, larger, vast, spacious, the the womb of the space mother. And so there's a process that we go through in initiatory rites. And sometimes in my groups, I also make like just human altars. Like sometimes I would put up an altar of the heart and put up all different little pictures, different aspects of 
union and broken heart and uh, coming together hard. And I would talk to people about like the the altar of your heart, like the heart itself is holding everyone you've ever loved and been loved by. And so we have all our heartbreaks that come and our heart openings that come through love that that lives. So we tend the capacity of the heart to have equanimity that the earth has or acceptance like the water does or uh, the radiance of light that the fire has or the capacity for transformation that air has its ability to you know one little oxygen molecule is that we breathe out is traveling seven to eight weeks all over the planet mixing in and out of all different kinds of other life forms people (laughs) creatures uh, trees bushes algae and then coming back to us and so when we but yeah, when we put a blessing on our breath, it's literal. We can send it air mail to anybody, anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a little tiny ritual that could be done. Like I just have a thought of, of you. I have this moment. I think of you, and I just put a little heart blessing on my next breath, and I, I send it. And it may take seven to eight weeks for it to arrive, and all of a sudden there'll be this the moment where you feel a sudden little extra moment of happiness for no unknown reason. And it's because somebody somewhere was whoosh, offering a little blessing. Oh, that is so beautiful. <laughs> and one of the other times of exploring, I put up an altar of broken dreams. And we Mm -hmm. took a mirror and shattered it, and then we put it on the wall, and you had to crawl through a really tight space to get in there. And then there was just this place where you could grieve and remember um, Mm -hmm. uh, and pray for those broken dreams Mm -hmm. that didn't come to fruition. There's a bodhisattva called Jitsu in in, in Japan, and there is the bodhisattva that helps people travel through the difficult times and times of loss, and so I might have something like that, an icon of any of the archetypes or deities or bodhisattvas that help those who are suffering through a time of, whether it's the ending of a relationship or maybe there was a creative project that you just so wanted to do and you got certain, you know, certain you got into it to a certain level and then realized that you just didn't have the time and juice at that point in time to fulfill it or it might be a child that didn't come to pass so many different things that people have that create the broken dreams but a place to remember and honor that dream and grieve the brokenness of it and to just be with a shattered feeling and then I would place it directly across the room from an altar of resource Mm -hmm. great big fishnet with with uh, all kinds of creative implements, sound making and and uh, scissors and art supplies to cut and make something new um, uh, to resource an image out of having visited the the altar of shattered dreams. So you should just take a group of people and say, okay, what kind of altar could we create for you that would help you have an initiatory experience to process and transform and metabolize something 
in your psyche that wants movement or some part of your psyche that just simply wants to grow. It's not about healing. It's like there's just a thread in you that's never had the right context so that you could begin to bloom some new capacity that you actually have. And how can we help create the context that would let that grow? And if you don't even know what it is, we can just make a context of hidden, unknown dreams. Mm-hmm. And can be a place that's more in the dark and that you go in and you dwell in, to dwell in the dark of not knowing for a period of time and come back out and play a little bit and go back in as many times as you need to until some little inkling of something is starting to take its sprout in you. Right, and And just, I I was going to say the, you know, having a location having a focus, yeah. having something that is outside of yourself for you to spend time with, even yeah. in the altar of the unknown, you know, yeah. is, um, is extremely helpful. And then the fact that there's a whole group of us doing that, so we're witnessing each other and we're playing, we're moving, we're sounding, we're singing, and in it suddenly you feel yourself called forth in a way you've never been called forth by the context itself, the activity of the people playing in the theater of their discovery. And out of that, all of a sudden, emerges a aspect, a, a new golden thread of your soul process that for the first time is like, oh, I could move. That's what happened for me when I met Emily. I didn't think I was a mover because I couldn't do steps and do counts. And when I met Emily, it was like here was a whole way of moving that had nothing to do with everything that I'd ever been taught. This is what movement is. And it was so exciting. Like right away in that context, my creativity just began to blossom forth. Mm -hmm. And I went from thinking I wasn't creative at all, it had none of that as a self-description, to now so many ways I've explored in my lifetime because of just seeing in that one moment like, oh, this old self-description is not true. And something else is coming awake and alive in me. And I can dare to try out this and that. Mm. I love it. I love (laughs) it. I love it. This is just so, um, so beautiful. So Susan, we've uh, we've come to the end again. Again. Again, I know. I mean, they're not really ends, they're just pauses, yeah, right? That's um, right. In the, in the larger sense of thing, but um, wow, you have, uh, the way in which you work with change, with people, with vulnerability, with the elements themselves, with relationship of, of all things, creatures, people, spirits, is just um, beautiful. It really does. Uh, it is just filled with absolute possibility. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. So again, if you could tell people how to find you, because now they really want to find you, um, <laughs> uh, how can they find you? Yes. What you'll actually find when you go to find me is that almost everything is a week long because... In investigating all these things, I find that a longer retreat is so helpful to 
unpack and reveal and open up the territory for people individually and collectively. And so those events are on my website, continuummontage.com, C-O-N-T-I-N-U-U-M-M-O-N-T-A-G-E.com, and Susan Harper 2012 at gmail.com is my email address. You can just request to be on our mailing list, and then you'll get newsletters of events that I offer on the East Coast and West Coast and very occasionally in Europe and Japan. Wonderful. Well, Susan, thank you so much, and thank you for being in my life and for being on this um, podcast and sharing yourself um, with me and with everyone. Thank you, too, Sharon, so much, and so many, so much appreciation for what you're doing and doing these and, and inviting so many interesting people with so many perspectives to come talk and for everybody who listens. Yeah, it sure is fun for yeah. me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes, indeed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, okay. Thank you. To be continued. This has been Passing for Normal, conversations about seeding change in the world. To find out more about author Sharon Weil, go to SharonWeilAuthor.com. You can also find out more about Changeability, the book, and about all of the guests featured in this podcast at that website. Large or small, go out today and make a brave change. Whether creating something new or responding to a changing world, navigating change is the new stability.